Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, a show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastian Couture. And I'm Brian Fleming Crane. As you know, back in May, we were in Amsterdam for the Bitcoin 2014 conference. While we were there, Sean Jones conducted a series of interviews with a number of people on the topic of cryptocurrency regulation. We think that given the recent European Banking Authority opinion paper warning uh, financial institutions to stay away from virtual currencies, this is an extremely appropriate time to release those very valuable opinions by these people and dive more deeply in this topic. This is the second episode of our regulation interviews from Bitcoin 2014. In the first interview, Sean talked to Patrick Merck, he's the general counsel of the Bitcoin Foundation, and he talked about the stance of the Bitcoin Foundation towards regulation. The second interview is with Preston Byrne, he's a securities lawyer based in London and very interested in Bitcoin 2.0 and decentralized application and explores the legal implications of smart contracts. So on my final day, and I suppose the final lap of uh, Bitcoin 2010, I've uh, fortunately been able to grab hold of very popular and uh, important person, Patrick Merck, who is general counsel uh, of the Bitcoin Foundation, uh, the legal legal, the legal legal, uh, when it comes to all things Bitcoin. And Patrick, you've been very heavily engaged in this last year with regulators and uh, legislators uh, and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little about what's been going on in that last year. Yeah so it, it has certainly been a busy year on the policy front um, and uh, we've uh, we've been spending a lot of time both building our capabilities there uh, building up our messaging around that and also engaging at the same time so we've been doing both strategy and tactics all together um, and uh, I think it's paid off uh, uh, and I think you can measure our success by kind of some of the lack of action, right? The um, uh, lack of uh, technology-specific rules or regulations or things like that. Um, the thesis that we came to is that the best environment for Bitcoin's ultimate success, and uh, and we define success for Bitcoin, keeping the protocol open, participatory, distributed, decentralized, um, the best prescription for that success is to not ask for new rules or new regulations. Um, we, no one really knows how this will develop over time. So any sort of attempt at rule ma making or regulation that's specific to a technology would be premature. So, uh, what we have uh, what we do think is fair and appropriate is to, to look at what the services are that are being offered and how they fit in current regulatory frameworks. Uh, over time, we can then judge if there are incidences that we need to uh, address uh, as a community or or through the uh, uh, governmental affairs, uh, regulatory affairs uh, groups to, to, to solve those problems proactively. But for now, it's more a matter of just mapping it out and seeing exactly where things fit uh, how they fit, and and for the most part, seeing is there an opportunity to maybe not have as much regulation uh, in the space. Uh, if we can look at some of the services and how they're being provided, potentially some of the regulations were that were uh, that are uh, uh, being applied here 
may not, in fact, uh, be necessary. The policy goals behind them uh, may only fit uh, traditional kind of systems. So uh, applying the current regulatory framework uh, and then forbearance on those items that don't seem to make sense in a trustless system, decentralized system. Yes. I remember the question posed by uh, one of the panelists um, back to the audience just yesterday uh, from the uh, European Banking Authority was, uh, why does it have to be uh, anonymous? You know, as if, well, you solve that problem and I, I start to relax was because of sort of message coming through there. Presumably those kind of uh, responses uh, kind of difficult for you guys sure. um, on the policy front. Well, it's it's one that actually will probably get more difficult over time than it is today because Bitcoin, as it's used right now, is not anonymous. Um, it's it's far from it. Um, if anything, there's a big technical challenge um, and consumer education challenge on making sure that it's private enough for mass uh, consumer adoption. So I don't consider Bitcoin no. particularly ready for mass consumer adoption yet uh, for a couple of different reasons, but the primary reason uh, is is around this privacy element. It's simply not private enough right now as it is constructed. Um, now, there's a difference between anonymity and privacy, right? Um, and I think that we often conflate those terms in harmful ways. Um, so there's actually a place for both of those things in our world. Um, but we do have, as a community, both an opportunity and a challenge to respect everybody's privacy in a meaningful way um, and at the same time create a responsible system um, that doesn't require outside regulation or at least not heavy-handed outside regulation. So the concerns that would be, were being expressed, for, and I think that was, uh, a gentleman was heading up a task force for mm. a digital currency task force for FATF, which is a... Uh, uh, actually, no, for the European uh, Banking Authority. Oh, for the European yeah. Banking Authority, great. Um, so the, the concerns uh, there in that, in that community uh, are for every technology, for every payment system and payment method are around um, consumer protection and transparency, right? And when he says the anonymous piece is, is an issue for, for him or gives him heartburn, it's around this transparency. What's, what, you know, what's happening in the system? Um, traditionally, everything about a transaction is hidden from the world unless there's a regulatory responsibility to keep records and, and file uh, things. Uh, in, in the system that's been created here, mm. there's already radical transparency baked in. Uh, perhaps there's an opportunity to rethink um, uh, some of these rules and forbear on some of these rules because you already have so much transparency into the transaction flow. Mm. So you were right out there with the with FinCEN, with the Senate hearings, with FTC, all the various bodies at the federal level, is that right, in, in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Um, what did you find their response, the, the general response? How, how did they receive this stuff that they were getting testimony on and so forth? It has definitely changed over time. Um, so you went from skepticism, sometimes deep skepticism, to healthy skepticism, to there, now you're starting to see emerge people uh, within the agencies and on the Hill uh, who, who grasp exactly what the benefit of this kind of system is. Um, there are challenges, there are risks, uh, and those can be mitigated, but you should always bear in mind as you start trying to mitigate those risks, um, there is a tremendous opportunity here for all of us, uh, and I don't think that's lost on the regulatory community mm. at all. 
they just might have a different balance. Yes. I think there's a contrast between how it works in the States from how it works in Europe. In the States, it's there's often political motivation, if I understand it correctly, uh, behind grabbing the headlines. And, of course, it's the headlines that, that people listen to or see or hear. Um, whereas in Europe, there isn't that same driver. Um, mm. Officials tend to be purely bureaucrats. They're civil servants, largely. And the politicians uh, don't directly influence that. So you've only got the legislators and, and they don't have a lot of appetite for, for grabbing headlines in quite that same way. Mm. And so it's much more uh, consultative here, whereas one gets the feeling, looking at it from mm. this side of the pond anyway, mm. that in America um, there's a kind of shoot first and ask questions later approach and and that's what gets a lot of the attention what i'm hearing from you is that actually you've got a lot of you've got a lot of positive feedback from uh, from 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 your regulators and legislators it's definitely a mixed bag we've also seen shoot first ask questions later without a doubt uh, there are some states that have certainly taken it upon themselves to to first promote um, uh, uh, their um, place in the process uh, ahead of uh, actually substantive work on that. Um, and so you, you do have to deal with that a bit. Um, at the same time, yes, there, it, it's, it's, there are just so many, uh, different groups that have a finger in the pie here, um, that they all have a different, and they all have very different ways of dealing with it. And things. they all want their say, of course. Is, is New York an example of I one of those that, places? I would say that, that some don't want their say. Actually, some are, are simply sitting on the sidelines and don't want to get involved yet for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, the Commodities Future Trading Commission, for example, they've mentioned Bitcoin before and they've mentioned these systems, but they're not really that ready to have a say in it. For them to have a say in it means they have to take responsibility for it. Okay. And so some people don't want to do that yet. And they have very valid reasons for not wanting to do that yet. It's a very immature market. It's a brand new market. And, uh, it has a ways to go before it's, 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 um, even worthwhile. Mm. And it, 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 some would argue that commodities and futures and derivatives more broadly are partly responsible for the mess, the financial mess that we've been in this last six years or so. Well, it does point out, that does point out um, uh, an important thing that we talk about a lot is the scope, right? Um, with Bitcoin, you're talking about something that is that right now is currently a very small phenomenon still. Mm, yes. Uh, it feels large when you come to conferences like this and you're, you're in the mix. But when you look at the broader world and, the, and, you know, it's both, you know, uh, challenging in the sense that it's still a very small group, but, you know, it's good that it's a small group because we're able to come together a little bit easier. Uh, and the opportunity is still huge, but it's all, it's, 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 it's still opportunity and it's still potential. Um, we still need to tap into it, and that's going to be, you know, maybe not just multi-year, but multi-decades uh, ahead of us. Hmm. Well, we, we we are where we are with the internet after twenty years yes. in terms of in commercial terms. Um, so we should have that sort of a right. Everybody, of course, wants right. it all to happen and be clear today and that's tomorrow, right. but that's it's, not going to happen. And that's twenty years from when you had the first real commercial web browser. Mm. It's possible that we don't yet have a real commercial web browser mm -hmm. for Bitcoin. So we're mm -hmm. still in that pre-commercial internet phase right now. I know that people are 
trying to be that, and that's very good news. Um, but that's that's how early this really is. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting perspective. So from the foundation's point of view, um, you, you see this with a much uh, further horizon than quite a lot of the participants in in, in Bitcoin businesses today who, 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 who want to have clarity today and know exactly where they stand and, and, and be able to get on with their business. It's not going to happen quite like that. Yeah. So there's the, so, so clarity is important, but clarity could come at a cost that's not something that you should pay right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a tricky balance and I think people need to be very, very thoughtful about what they mean by clarity. Um, if clarity comes at the price of compromising Bitcoin as an open, participatory, decentralized, truly decentralized system, then you haven't really won anything um, by getting it in the first place. Mm. You talked earlier on about um, te- uh, technology-specific laws, regulations, um, not being a good thing. In broad terms, yes. and yet in New York, uh, there's a, 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 a supervisory authority uh, that is, I think, even named their, their 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 idea for Bitcoin specific regulation, calling it Bit Licenses. Yes. Um, so it clearly doesn't apply to Litecoin, then. <laughs> well, yes, I, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what people would think of Doge uh, yeah. licenses, for yes. example. But mm-hmm. in, uh, in in your opinion, then, this is not a good road to go down. So, well, no, I mean, but we, no one knows exactly what a bit license is. All we've heard are just very rough ideas of it. It has not been a fully baked cake right now. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to know, you know, do I agree, disagree, or anything like that. I would say that aside, marketing aside, the idea of a tech-specific bit license is unfortunate. Um, now, having a conversation with New York that says, let's talk about your money transmitter rules. What are the policy goals here? It's about protecting consumers and preventing illicit use of the system. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, so that's consumer protection and transparency again. Right, so the transparency piece of it is handled at the federal level. Uh, all those companies have to be money service businesses registered with the U.S. Treasury's FinCEN department, uh, and those companies have to file SARS and and FinCEN. You know, that's a that's a conversation that's been going on for a little while now about how to attack these problems uh, in a in a thoughtful way. Um, and at the state level, while they also have an interest in seeing that that transparency happens, the primary focus is generally on consumer protection. So those ra- that raises interesting questions when you're talking about a system where sometimes the highest degree of consumer risk isn't that a third party or an intermediary runs off with your money, it's that you don't store it properly or, um, or you somehow, uh, 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 don't uh, miss either don't store it properly so that it's stolen or because you lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you how do you think about things then? Why regulate an exchange that never has custody over funds? What's the regulatory justification? What's the policy justification for that type of regulation for requiring somebody to have a surety bond when they don't have any customer funds at risk? That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I agree that that doesn't make sense, and we should have a conversation about how we can forbear on some of these rules, right? Let's get the benefit of Bitcoin, create those efficiencies, 
let more businesses bloom without endangering any consumers in any new way. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a positive development. As I understand it, there are a lot of regulations in the existing framework um, that are simply impossible for Bitcoin to or Bitcoin mm-hmm. businesses exchanges in some cases to to comply with simply because some of those criteria just don't exist. It's not right. in the system. Those, those rules were created oftentimes in public-private mm. partnership, you know, decades ago uh, by, you know, entities and systems that had a specific way of doing things, mm. right? These systems required intermediation, and the intermediaries then became the police mm. of the, the system. Um, when you have a system with no intermediaries, perhaps the police should be the police of that system. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, I suppose it's not really a bit license. It's an inter, it's a, it's a, a, a disintermediary, uh, intermediated world <laughs> license. Right. In other words, that doesn't mark it as well, yeah. right? But, it, but indeed, you know, again, so again, not having a license that says, because you're this type of technology, let's have more neutral terms. Mm. Let's not fall into the same trap we fell into 30 years ago by having public private partnerships building systems around a specific type of uh, 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 process or system or, or technology. Let's let's think about what the policy goals are to begin with. If the policy goal is to protect consumers when a third party takes custodial uh, act, uh, has custodial access to your funds, let's just talk about custodial access to your funds. Mm. Yes, I, I think that makes a huge amount of a huge amount of sense. Presumably, that's going to take a lot longer still because that, yes, and that's that, a, that, that, that too is, many that too is, many. Fingers uh, uh, and pies to, to play with there. Right. And so to get there, right, instead of trying to anticipate what the world's going to look like and regulate the thing we're anticipating, let's take a step back. Let's create clarity by saying, you can come into the market. You can start building these companies. It's small now. It's safe. Disclose to your consumers how high risk this is in the first place so that people getting into it really understand what they're getting into. And let's see what the problems are that arise. And if there are problems, if there are market failures, then let's address them through smart regulation. Mm. So let's, if we may, um, draw this to a close and just discuss things happening outside of the U.S., I appreciate, presumably, it's, it's, it's simply lack of resources that allows you to address, uh, too many places, uh, all at the same time. Um, and you've got, I suppose, what is it, 51 countries in the United States, if you take the federal, <laughs> yeah. federal government to deal with as well. Um, so that, 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 that's a fair number of, uh, of jurisdictions. Now, there's the, the rest of the world. Uh, the next big block, of course, is, is the European Union. Does the foundation have some, some plans to address the same kind of issues, but at the European level? Yeah, so we've participated in FATF, um, uh, which is beyond even the EU, mm. but we were in Brussels for that. Um, and, uh, we, uh, we are, you know, taking the framework that we've been building, some of the strategy, um, and exporting it, right? Um, and allowing people locally to have who have a better sense of the tactics that are appropriate mm-hmm. to, to implement them, um, because we do have limited resources and limited reach. The the process is to identify key jurisdictions around the world 
Um, I still would love feedback on what those jurisdictions should be. But we can clearly identify some, right? So the EU, right, is one. So some, some Frankfurt, you know, is probably the right place um, to have that conversation. Probably Brussels. Maybe Brussels. It yeah. depends on, you know, it, it does oh. depend. Um, um, well, even London, because the the European Banking Authority sure. is based there. So, sure, potentially yeah. London. Although I don't believe, I don't think that I don't know if the rest of the EU considers London part of Europe. But yeah, I well, understand. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but the world clears through London, so that's yeah. that's one uh, area that we've talked about. You know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai. These are all fi- traditional financial hubs. The, you know, and these are the places that the world clears through mm. already. Um, moving into Latin America, which is a hugely important market mm-hmm. for, for Bitcoin, identifying a jurisdiction there where it makes the most sense, um, uh, without banging your head against the wall, uh, where the countries are that have, uh, fiscal policies that will never really accommodate Bitcoin. Um, so though that's, that's, that's the conversation that's happening right now. Um, and uh, again, I'm, I would love to have feedback on what those key jurisdictions are because we do have to start narrowing the field a bit, picking where you can have the most broad-based influence uh, and then working from there. So send your emails, listeners, to, to Patrick Merck at the Bitcoin <laughs> Foundation. Uh, he's waiting for your feedback I've set right up, now. I've set up my email filter now. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, thank you very, very much for sharing your thoughts with us this afternoon, explaining um, a, a lot, actually, that I didn't know, so I'm sure our listeners didn't know it either. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thank you very much for having me. So this is Sean Jones. I'm at Bitcoin 2014 in Amsterdam with about a thousand other people, uh, one of whom uh, was just nominated for the Bitcoin legal expert, um, lawyer, uh, based in London, uh, Preston Byrne. Do you want to tell us uh, a little about yourself, uh, Sean? Um, yeah, basically, I'm a securities lawyer. So what I do in my day-to-day practice is I take pools of contractual debt and I set up legal structures which reassign those pools to investors uh, who then hold that debt in the form of notes or bonds. So it's a very procedural type of practice. There are, you know, there are orders in which things go in and there are orders in which things go out. Um, and subject to some very complex if-or rules. And um, that, I think, has made the smart contract space in particular, but cryptocurrency in general, um, of significant interest to me from a legal perspective because it sort of reminds me of my home turf. And this is something you're very active in. I know I follow you on uh, the Ethereum uh, Skype uh, channels and you you have a, an awful lot to say and uh, a lot of insight. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about um, smart contract? Well, I mean, I suppose, I, I think the starting point is, I've, I've been interested in them for some time. I, uh, I was familiar with Nick Zabo's work before Ethereum kicked off and became cool. Um, but what makes it a really productive and rewarding endeavor going into this is that most of the people who are writing smart contracts are these very brilliant, it's not like Bitcoin where you have these it's moving very swiftly towards business practice and investment in certain firms which are able to service Bitcoin and merchant acceptance of Bitcoin and adoption of Bitcoin and frankly regulation of Bitcoin but regulatory law is in certain respects quite boring AML is one of the is one of the dullest areas of practice I can possibly imagine Um, and smart contracts by contrast um, firstly they blend in well with transactional law because that's what they're designed to do and they're quite exciting because they challenge the way that we look at legal relations the way that we look at interpersonal transactions of all kinds and that can be financial transactions that can also be communications um, that can be the storage of data 
And so that's really what's attracted me into the field. Um, as to what a smart contract is, there are sort of two different views. Um, and that's true in every area of smart contract practice. There's the engineer's view and there's the legal view. And not oftentimes they don't link up. Um, I, I, the engineer's view is that the smart contract is an autonomous piece of code that lives on a blockchain that operates according to certain rules and will respond in certain ways to certain instructions every single time. Um, in that sense, Bitcoin itself is maybe considered a smart contract of a kind, a very basic one, um, rather like ARPANET in comparison to the kind of smart contracts which are being proposed. Um, but going forward, we have individuals who are planning very, very complex arrangements from, you know, the very simple smart contract, which is a collateralized S or collateral or escrow agreements, um, smart loans are fairly straightforward to the more complex, which are communications and social networking. So the potential for a decentralized network to really change the face of Bitcoin, I'll be honest with you, I don't hold any Bitcoin. Um, I have no intention of ever holding any Bitcoin. Um, and I think that the utility offered by smart contract platforms um, when compared against all of the fuss that's being made against Bitcoin. Um, I don't understand the relative uh, lack of emphasis on smart contracts. Perhaps that's because they don't exist, um, at least in a commercially workable form. And something very new. And so, yeah, they are very new. But we've known about them for about 17, 18 years. They've existed in theory. And for an industry which prides itself, I think, of being quite progressive, um, the lack of emphasis on the smart contract space, you know, a lot of these guys are self-funded, they're on their own, doing it on their own, but at the same time, this is really where corporate interest is starting to come in. This is where companies are beginning to look at the blockchain and understand that this is a viable way to make transactions more efficient. Um, and from, I think, a political perspective, I'm aware that a lot of Bitcoiners uh, are of the view that Bitcoin will democratize finance. <clears throat> That may be, but I think a lot of Bitcoiners are also of the view that more people using Bitcoin will drive up its price. Um, smart contracts are really, it, they're quite agnostic in the sense that you, you don't really have to pin yourself to any one protocol to get the utility and then capitalize that utility at a later date and then use a decentralized network in order to operate them. So in a sense, they're, they're very fair because you can set up this architecture and people will be charged very little to use it. And they can transfer value by writing new contracts on top of it really in any way they wish. So it's a platform that does not necessarily benefit the early adopters in the form of a rent, um, which Bitcoin admittedly does, um, but offers much of the same utility and in fact offers considerably more utility than Bitcoin. Um, and I, I'm surprised that a lot of people don't see that. I've heard it said that um, uh, uh, smart uh, contracts well, I've heard it said, first of all, that, that, that Bitcoin is the first app. Yes. And that well, smart, a smart yeah. con uh, sorry, that Ethereum as a platform of, um, and, and smart contracts more generally um, offer um, virtually boundless possibilities of apps, only limited by the imagination of, the, of, of, of those who want to innovate those apps. I think we should make a distinction between the platform and the app. Um, in, the, in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the platform. Um, it operates according to certain rules. It responds to certain instructions in a certain predictable way every single time with very rare exceptions where there's a fork. Um, in the case of the types of apps which are being designed on Ethereum, Ethereum is, is in my view, a blank slate upon which you can write contracts which will be self-contained at a particular location on the blockchain 
Um, they are able to change state from time to time in respect of certain amounts of data which are registered or, or deposited with that contract. And it's my understanding that when you want to amend the contract, certain fundamental terms, you then novate it into a new location on the blockchain, but it still feeds back into those other parts of the contract which are containing data or, or cash management functions. Um, in that sense, I mean, Bitcoin isn't really an app. Um, Bitcoin is what we call a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization or decentralized autonomous corporation, DAC, um, in, in other parlance. And a DAC is basically something which behaves as um, a custodian uh, of some description. And what it does is it carries out certain functions automatically. Bitcoin is a very basic DAC. Um, Ethereum is also a DAC, but it's a DAC which allows the construction of additional DACs or DAOs on top of it. And it just strikes me that that kind of functionality provided that it, and I do believe the Ethereum team is excellent, um, having met them. And there are other teams which are also excellent in the space. Ripple, um, is with its payments protocols, a very discreet industrial application. Um, Mastercoin is, is making efforts in, in this direction as is next, but really uh, Ethereum has been one of the most forward about it. Um, I think that that kind of functionality is really unrivaled and it's going to introduce a whole range of uses for blockchains, whether those be on the Ethereum platform or not, that that will, will really frankly change the, world, the way the world does business. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, Bitcoin, you know, people say, Adam Levin said in Tim Swanson's book, he said, Bitcoin, you know, welcome to the future of money. But he said that about Ethereum and I think he was wrong. Um, because it's not the future of money. This is the future of everything. Um, this is a decentralized industrial revolution. And and it will change the way that we interact with each other once, if it proliferates. And I think that it has a better chance of doing that simply because it's so much more functional. And that's a very bold statement. Well, and we'll, we'll, we'll see I'll, in, I'll, in 10 I'll years you've got it recorded. We'll, we'll so come uh, and uh, <laughs> interview you again and see if, if, if it lived up to the promise. Um, people hear the word contract and of course they think legal stuff they think lawyers obviously they think courts they yep. think codes right. uh, can you explain a little bit for our listeners what the difference is between a smart contract in the sense that you've just been describing and and this um, old body of, 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 of rules that we, we live by and operate under. Absolutely. I mean, if we, if we go back to Zabo to start, um, his vision was for a series of digital institutions which replicated the functions of bricks and mortar institutions, um, analog institutions. He called it wet code, the rules we live by. Um, and he proposed that you could use these contracts in order to, how to describe it, to replace these institutions because you could reduce the majority, if not all, human transactions to code. Um, and there are ways, there are transactions where you can do it, but there are practical difficulties with it on the blockchain. We'll get back to that in a second. Legal obligations exist because we deem them to exist, um, because the courts, the sovereign deems them to exist. And so they are you know, an old... Uh, an old boss of mine, we were talking about equitable interests, and he called them critters because you say, what's an equitable interest? And you throw your hands up because there's no neat definition of it. But it's a thing which, if presented to a court, will be protected by the court. And the court possesses the coercive power to render that thing or that act which should be done, done. So the difference between a smart contract and a legal contract, at least in the current context, is that the smart contract executes mechanics 
of the contract. So if Alice and Bob want to enter into a loan, Alice lends Bob 10 and Bob agrees to make periodic quarterly interest repayments of 2 plus 1 for t equals 5, then what you have is the contract will execute those things automatically. And if Bob has posted collateral, for example, the contract will not allow Alice to take his collateral unless there's an event of default. And the contract will not allow Bob to retrieve his collateral until he's paid the loan off in full. So in a sense, if you have a very simple contract like that, you do in fact have an agreement. Um, the enforceability of that agreement at law, legally, relates to the intention of Alice and Bob when they're entering into this smart contract. The actual practicality is that Bob is unable to retrieve his collateral, but that doesn't necessarily interfere with an interest which a court might force against Alice in, for example, a situation where Alice took advantage of some exploit in the code in order to seize his collateral and get paid in full the loan. The court would then give Bob certain rights against Alice. So the gulf between those two positions, between the smart contract position and the legal contract position, is really one of real-world enforceability. And you could, in principle, have contracts on the blockchain which were which bore no no connection whatsoever to the real world and were entirely transacted over the blockchain. That would not stop there from being a legal contract from coming into existence, although those terms may or may not be set out. Um, but it might frustrate enforcement somewhat in the event that one of the parties behaved badly and the code was badly written. So for more complex transactions, it's going to be very important to build, I use the term backdoor, programmers hate it, but you need to have an ability for a trusted third party to step into the transaction. That said, trusted third parties doing that, you're still benefiting from about 95% of, you know, in terms of your economic position, you benefit from automation much more than you lose from having a party in a third party capacity who's able to step in and arrest that contract. Presumably, when 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 lawyers or pre-lawyers first thought of um, uh, writing agreements down and, and 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 writing up contracts, they thought this was a good way of doing it because we could um, list everything that might happen and what the the different circumstances and how the, uh, what effect those different circumstances would have. And, and 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 there's supposed to be clarity in the written word of a contract, and of course. As we know in the real world, that that isn't the case. I disagree. Um, I think that contracts are actually deliberately vague. Um, but I, I'm being completely serious. They are in some cases there are, there are rules. For example, in uh, in in the United Kingdom, if there's ambiguity in a contractual term, it's construed against the person who's seeking to enforce it. In the United States, if there's ambiguity in a contractual term, it's construed against the person who drafted it or introduced it into the agreement. But in contracts, you do not necessarily want a rigid and unmoving framework. Because that means that changed circumstances, um, you cannot account for those. Um, a, a prime example is if you make reference to a, uh, a transaction party needing all the necessary licenses, approvals, and consents to enter into an agreement, and then that party then either ceases to have those licenses well, that's one thing, or those the requirements change mm. because of facts in the ground. So, for example, the particular area of business in which that party is operating becomes risky because there's a financial recession or because it's contributing to you know, some other public ill. And, um, and the government will step in and say, actually, the terms on which you were transacting this before, those are no longer relevant now. You need to do this. A paper contract, it's conceivable that a paper contract can change because you can interpret it differently. That's The vagueness is deliberate. With a smart contract, if you are unable to make the appropriate accommodations by virtue of the cryptography, um, you may find yourself in situations, You, the parties may find themselves in a situation where neither of them are getting what they want, and the contract itself may even be rendered unenforceable um, in respect of a particular jurisdiction. This is particularly true with consumer credit. 
Okay. So have you got an example of, of, of that? Of where a contract would be rendered unenforceable? If you had, let's say, someone entered into a loan, um, it was a smart contract loan, and and there were the co a court subsequently turns around and deems that the relationship between the, oh, I don't know, try to think, actually back up. Let's say someone takes out an insurance policy um, on a loan which insures their payments. Um, so they go to the bank and they say, bank, um, I'd like to take out a loan of 100. And the bank goes, fine, you can take out a loan of 100. But in addition to the 100, we're going to make you borrow five. With that five, you're going to purchase an insurance policy from an insurer. And, uh, and you have to buy it from them. And the person goes, okay, fine, fine, that's fine. So they go and do it. It transpires that the bank and the insurer have a relationship where there was a series of payments which were made by the insurer to the bank um, in respect of the bank directing consumers to the insurer. Mm -hmm. Um, when that happens, customer has borrowed five over time equals whatever and made payments of principal and interest in relation to it. Under the current regime, um, the customer benefits from legislation which allows that customer to reclaim both the principal and interest that they paid plus penalty interest on top of it. Um, and, so, and so that functionality, if the court, let's say that legislation didn't exist or new legislation came into existence which deemed that some aspect of the original lending arrangement was unfair, um, a court would step in and attempt to unwind it. If you have a smart contract in respect of which that cannot be done, um, you have a big problem because you suddenly have an unenforceable contract and you're liable in respect of it. And as the consumer, you're not going to want that. So it's introducing flexibility into contracts. Yes, it's a matter of legal practicality. But also, if we think of it in that context, it's also a matter of consumer demand. Consumers have rights. Um, parties have rights. The law implies those rights. And if you're stepping into a new space where you have all of this functionality and all of this frictionlessness. Frictionlessness? Is that even a word? I think you can guess right and, 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 and you benefit from all of this automation. Um, sure, the banks will benefit. The consumer may benefit in terms of reduced costs. Uh, freedom benefits because it's all being conducted cryptographically. And, um, and it, it will suit the agenda of decentralization for those who believe that that is the true and proper course of action. But you also have to create something that people will want to use. And if you have a contract which doesn't do that, you're, you, no one's going to use it, at least in my view, or um, other lenders who aren't using smart contracts or other lenders who are will compete with you on terms and they will beat you because people will say, hold on a second, I have rights under this agreement, which I don't have under this agreement. And so even if the price is slightly different, the inclusion of those rights has value in itself. And so I would rather go with the second contract where that flexibility is built in and you know, I'm buying accountability um, in exchange for you know the loss of, uh, of a trustless network, and of a fully trustless network. And I suppose there's going to be a lot of um, interesting work done on uh, making smart contracts fit into the legal contract framework and into enforceable contracts that you can take to it. It's not to too cool. I don't think it's that hard. Um, I think it, you hear all of this stuff, DAOs. I was talking to an academic on this the other day, and there was this debate what happens if you know, DAOs get out of control and you know, become Skynet and eat us. And it's, it's, it's a silly debate because, you know, okay, fine, you have a DAO which sits outside and can't be affected and, and, and won't budge, you know, no matter how many drone strikes you shoot at it or, or how much uh, hash power you point at it. It's, you know, it's there. It exists it's on the blockchain. In the network, yes. Can't be changed. I think you're going to find that, remember, the blockchain, there is a human element to a blockchain, and that element is crucial to any blockchain's function, and that element is consensus. 
Um, and that consensus is, and it's the same thing with any other distributed autonomous organization, you have a user. And that user capitalizes the DAO and it uses the DAO. It cannot be designed simply from an engineering perspective. It has to be designed in respect of legal considerations because people will not enter into illegal contracts. And, and practical and market considerations, which are that you have to structure them so that they serve some useful purpose and they do so in a way which is valuable and increases the aggregate value of the transaction. And um, I think that's where it will go. Um, but we need to really start first seeing commercially viable platforms that can be deployed. Um, they're almost there. <laughs> but, and the people are writing, uh, there's a chap named Dennis McKinnon mm -hmm. uh, out in Canada who's particularly well along. And uh, he has a very interesting modular contract he calls Doug, which I, I recommend your listeners look up. Um, and uh, it's on my website, PrestonBurn.com, a, a brief post. And I've got to write some more about it, uh, some more about it going forward. But yeah, Dennis is a, Lovely guy, nice guy, smart guy, and actually very amenable to criticism. And he's working on this contract, which is quite flexible. Um, and I think that that's approaching something which becomes commercially viable. And once you see one that works, and just like Bitcoin, it'll have to work. It'll have to work every time. It'll have to work without fail. It'll have to be tested again. And, you know, Bitcoin's an open beta. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, was no, there was no alpha on testnet and any of that stuff. They just let it go. And the same thing will happen with smart contracts. So... What's your prediction on timescale before we're all familiar with, well, when we come to smart contract 2016, 2017, what? I, um, I said in January, uh, early February of this year, I said that it's only a matter of time before governments, businesses, and financial institutions begin incorporating blockchains into their operations. At the time I made that assertion, um, numerous decentralization advocates said, you are out of your mind. Um, that will never happen. Um, Two weeks ago, Fedor started using Ripple. Mm -hmm. um, last week, a bank in Mexico started using Ripple. Um, I'm talking with a bank at the moment um, that is looking into decentralized ledgers, either decentralized or um, or ledgers which are proprietary, in order to structure the transactions. And and this is coming. Um, I don't think we're going to see. I don't think we'll see the kind of mass adoption of smart contract ledgers within the next twelve months. Within 36, I would be very surprised if most banks were not using 36 months, so three years from today. I'd be very surprised if most banks in the world were not using these kinds of ledgers in industrial applications in some way. That's, um, that's a very clear prediction. And, it's a clear um, prediction. You can and it's something we journalists love because, of course, we can revisit we can it absolutely <laughs> and come back and, and, and it'll haunt you. Uh, either because it was, um, it, you know, it wasn't generous enough or because it was too cheap. You know. <laughs> damned if I do. Damned exactly. If I exactly. I want to turn to, to one last thing. Uh, yeah. We were both in a, a panel debate or in the audience panel debate earlier on today and uh, the subject of which was was uh, AML, anti-money laundering. Right. It was some very, uh, probably one of the, the most lively uh, panel sessions today and um, very interesting. You, um, you asked a question regarding um, uh, off-chain transactions and how it might solve some very particular problems. I wondered if you'd want to share that with um, yeah, the audience. Quite happy to. So the, the panelists, I, I was looking at them sort of chasing their tails. And that's not a criticism. It's just that's the way that the discussion was going. And uh, I'm merely being descriptive. Um, and I think they were looking for a universal, uniform solution to identity in the blockchain. And the fact is that will never happen. Um, and again, for the same reason that, for the same reason that you're not going to have a smart contract, which is fully automatic, um, you're not going to have a cryptocurrency where everyone signs on because there is a human element, the element of the user, the element of consensus. 
And the idea that you can take Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency and then reduce it entirely to regulation, um, that's an idea. It could be done. Maybe you have some proprietary bank cryptocurrency where a bank issues crypto tokens, which are redeemable against the bank dollar for dollar. And, you know, it benefits from transaction fees or mining fees or God knows what else. So, you know, any major commercial bank you can name, they create one. They say, if you come to, I don't know, you get the idea. Um, but with a decentralized one like Bitcoin, I think that'll frankly never happen. Firstly, because the blockchain is beyond your control. And secondly, because if there were a blockchain which the regulators attempted to, to render controllable, um, I think you'd see a fork in about 10 seconds flat. And, and you know, they, so yeah, who's going to jump on official coin and who isn't? Of course, you don't need to do that. You, what you can do is you can use a, an off-chain solution and then businesses will be required to use it and comply with the regulations and then the blockchain will carry on doing what it does. And that won't make what people are doing on-chain outside of the official uh, framework legal um, and it won't make it all right if you know, if someone decides they're going to enter the assassination market with Bitcoin or something like that. But what it is, it's an acknowledgement of reality and who you can control and how you can control them. The state is entitled to step in, or well, not entitled, the state is able to step in. Um, about to get in serious trouble there with, uh, with my libertarian friends. But the state is able to step in in very discreet places, points of articulation where there are entities which it controls, um, through legal control, and they will, the cost to them of not being, uh, of not submitting to that legal control is prohibitively high. Any business, any legal entity, any trust, any private individual who chooses to, uh, who chooses to identify themselves. So I think if, if the discussion goes the way that that particular panel seemed to endorse, um, which is a view I frankly don't agree with, but, um, you know, the regulators are the regulators, then I think what we'll wind up seeing is a trusted silo which mediates most legally required transactions um, or several trusted silos which compete with each other on terms and price. Um, and then you'll also see the blockchain carrying on very difficult to control. Um, as, uh, as the chat from Ripple said, you know, you've got green, red, and gray. And, you know, you can't go red to green. And uh, you, know, you can't go red to gray. Which you know, Can you go green to gray? And, you know, th that's the distinction. I think you'll, you'll see people could still do peer-to-peer -peer transactions, buying Bitcoin from someone down the street. Would the government realistically be able to control that? Probably not. Um, would they be able to limit? Or maybe you don't even need the regulation. Maybe a bank could say, this is our silo. You can use Bitcoin with us, but in order to cross the threshold and get into the banking system, you need to submit to the following disclosure requirements. That's entirely fair for the banking sector because the, you know, the banking sector is not a public good, although we seem to pay for it with our, with our, with our taxes, but that's a discussion for another time. But um, it is a private industry and, um, and we do not necessarily have a right to use it. So particularly if they are going to be exposing themselves to sanction and liability uh, in order to engage with the Bitcoin business, which is something which would not be advisable or desired by the banks. Um, I think it's entirely appropriate for them to create that silo and say, you can do it, but you have to do it on our terms. And uh, at a practical level, how might those silo systems work? Are there examples of, 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 of those in existence or being planned? Swift, or? I think, is, okay. is a sort of, it's a sort of trusted mutual silo between the banks themselves. Um, so you'd have to be very careful with a Bitcoin silo for obvious reasons because of um, the inability to get back something once it's been spent. But 
it would be by mutual agreement. There may even be, you know, there may even be a treaty that comes out of this, depending on how cryptocurrency takes off, which governs its use um, in mainstream transactions. And for all we know, there may be cryptocurrencies which are developed within silos. Um, and that is that is heresy, but the possibility is there. There, uh, A chap named uh, Greg, uh, what's his name? Greg Simon from CryptoWorks, um, that works with an E, um, he has devised a system, a proprietary blockchain system, which I think is industrially extremely promising. But at the same time, if you talk to someone in Bitcoin about it, they would say, well, this is absurd. Of course it can't hold value. It's not decentralized. But I think he has the idea about how you can monetize a silent blockchain. Um, and there are many ways you can do it. People are coming up with them every day. And um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, certainly in the next 12 months, in terms of proposals and um, and. and the beginnings of these projects, um, and within two to three years, we're going to see I think, very widespread implementation um, at first in financial applications, and from there it will expand. Because I guess this is where the banks um, are, are very involved at the moment, certainly in some countries, in developing bo- a blockchain-based project. Um, I don't think they're developing them. I think they're looking at them as a, as almost a curiosity, but remembering that a bank is a, is a very large corporate organization um, I don't they wouldn't take a very long time to deploy this if they if one of their competitors that's really what's going to happen a large bank is going to figure out how to use a blockchain um, and then all of its competitors will very swiftly pile in and look for similar uh, similar implementations the benefits could be um, a couple of banks in London just sacked 15,000 20,000 people each respectively mm-hmm. because their overheads are too high and they said we need to save money well okay imagine you get rid of your server architecture um, and you fire all of your IT employees and you reduce your expenses in your middle and back offices mm-hmm. and your audit function is automated and every minute you have an up-to-date picture about everything that's going on and everything that will go on um, because the all of your transactions have been uploaded onto the blockchain so not only do you know what's happening you know what's going to happen and you can you, know, you can predict that with a reasonable degree of certainty um, of course there's counterparty risk things like that but that's the that's the idea that you can have a very tightly organized system um, which performs all of its functions itself even very complex transactions like securitizations are in theory reducible uh, to a crypto ledger um, and yeah, it's only it, again. I said it in February. It's only a matter of time, and I will say it again. It is only a matter of time, um, and and I think it will surprise us how swiftly it actually happens. Uh, I don't think I could ask for a better end quote to uh, finish off this interview. And uh, thank you very much, Preston Byrne. Always a pleasure. For, uh, 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 entertaining our uh, our listeners do uh, do listen to Epicenter Bitcoin uh, on SoundCloud and uh, iTunes and wherever else you find uh, good podcasts thank you very much pleasure so we hope you enjoyed this episode about regulation we'd like to thank Sean Jones for her excellent work in capturing these very valuable opinions if you enjoyed this episode please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. And of course, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter at epicenterbtc. BTC.